The Timothy Aslan. Hello. Oh, hello. It's me. <laughs> and <laughs> and it is you listening along with us. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to episode 128 of Dismembering Horror, the podcast shoe, where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, the Tim Aslan. That's right. We dismember a horror film every week. We discuss what worked, what did not work, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a horror film. We are a duo of dark dilettantes, delving, (laughs) as I said, dismembering, digging into, delving into all the demonic delights of... Help me out, Tim. <laughs> this dark Danube of um, a dearth, dereliction. Yes, yes. Dearth of demonic and deadly delights. <laughs> anyway. And, uh, well, well, before we jump into the topic of today's episode, I always like to report if uh, we've had any listener-submitted observations or mm. addings ons to previous discussions we've had. So uh, a listener just watched and then watched Hexen Ooh. and then listened to our episode, which is what we kind of hope you all do for this. But if not, that's fine. As far as, you know, watch the movie first and listen in. But uh, a big thing of note that we didn't mention or discover on it concerning the music of Hexen that was uh, both important and interesting, he pointed out. But our listener pointed out that uh, he noticed there was something kind of unnerving or disquieting, disquieting, as he put it, with one of the music pieces during the, or I guess the musical piece during the Devil's Mass in the Woods scene. And he recognized it. It's a piece called, I don't know how to pronounce it, sorry, right, Cole... Nidre, N-I-D-R-E. And he said it's a really incredibly important prayer for the night of Yom Kippur mm. in uh, Jewish tradition as part of a, you know, it's a, it's a service called kind of the same name, Koa Nidr. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's, um, is it Nidre? Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. But, uh, you know, he did some digging and saw that uh, on the Criterion, you know, which the their main website, which always has supplemental articles to the film. So I somehow missed it. But the arranger of the 2001 recordings, which were intended to recreate, you know, exactly mm. what was the premiere's um, pieces, he found this passage that sort of, you know, gets into it. Uh, it says, there seems to have been some gratuitous anti-Semitism in the choice of Max Brooks' Co Nidre. It's spelled E-I at the end here. Mm. Uh, this melody is the most sacred of the Jewish liturgical year. 
and its use and its use would have been and still is offensive in the context of a film about satanic possession. Oh wow! How, however, the uh, chant works for dramatic reasons. It fits the devil's mass, and its ancient profundity ties the disparate parts of the scene together, while also creating a strange emotional counterpoint to what is on screen. This counterpoint becomes important when it is tied to the end of the film. Still. Jews were falsely regarded as devil worshippers, and someone undoubtedly had this association when he chose Brooks' arrangement. Who had this association becomes a critical question, particularly if Christensen really did have something to do with the choice of the music. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so. But boy, just, you know, even more of a way it sort of ties, it's all, all these older films that we watch, especially, you know, one like Hexen is just a part of this god in this case pre-world war ii era <laughs> right it's incredible but uh listener you know who you are thank you for sharing that with us you know who you are you <laughs> know who you are too and uh tim did you have any anything on your mind to to follow up on or share before we move on well to- yeah i mean a little bit just one thing, really. Last night I put on a documentary on Lovecraft and very quickly realized that I think we kind of touched on this in The Endless. Um, but really, The Endless is an attempt to further along the world building that Lovecraft was, you know, famous for. Like, I realize that now how they, they're really attempting to be Lovecraftian. The, the quote at the beginning obviously is a, a bit of a tell for that. Um, but when you when you put that in the context of uh, the question that that who was the listener who asked who recommended or recommended it? That was Jesse. Jesse, right? Sorry, Jesse. Um, when you put it in the context of the question that Jesse is asking, like, why is this getting that? I think it, it, we kind of danced around this, but didn't really specifically say, I, I think it really does kind of boil down to we as a culture, modern horror is really, really, really influenced by Lovecraft in so many ways. Like he really set the tone for the, the last hundred years of, of Western horror. And this idea of the unexplainable noises and knocks and the unknown, like, entities that live and don't care about us. They're indifferent, but they enjoy messing around and, like, torturing us. They're – so – and that's – that is Lovecraft. So The Endless really is a a Lovecraftian – or at least an attempt at a Lovecraftian world. And I can appreciate that. And I think that's why a lot of people like it. It's interesting how, yeah, I feel like Lovecraftian, what's the word, um, you know, how do you say it? A cosmic horror. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. How has you sort of been in vogue of late that we mentioned? But when you you mention it like that, I don't know, I can't help but think like um, you say – forces that enjoy torturing and that's that's what i had a, like i don't know that's just what i didn't i i have not recently read up on uh, on it like you but i feel like that is not what i think of when i think of lovecraftian cosmic horror where it's it is more about their intentions 
whether they have intentions or not is unknown. And that's what's horrifying. It's beyond our comprehension in that sense. Yeah, I think it it, it sort of depends on I, I by no means am an expert on Lovecraft stories, but like just watching the documentary and the and the I don't know handful of of Lovecraft stories I've read, they go back and forth. It depends, and it depends yeah. on the context. Some of them have that thing of like like the Dunwich horror really does sort of have this thing of of like it's it's trying to drive the dude crazy, like it it. It, it it takes a like the entity the the whatever it is kind of revels in that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, um, and some of them it's a totally other thing like rats in the walls which I really like is just this wild cosmicy like other dimensional like what is going on sort of fever dream yeah and I I pref- personally prefer that those ones more um, and. I, you know, I don't know. The endless kind of feels like it's it's, and maybe this is part of why we didn't love it. I think it's it's kind of unsure which direction to go at times. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. It's a little middling in a way, potentially. Or but it's I a think lot it, of both. <laughs> in a way. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think it makes me appreciate what they're they're attempting. I think I said this in the episode as well, but like I, I do appreciate the what they're going after. And yeah. I think per Jesse's question, like of why people are digging it, I do think it just sort of comes down to the the vibe of that type of world building and storytelling. People yeah. like there's a large portion of people who just they are into it. And if they are, they need to go watch Color Out of Space. I'm glad it sounds like that one's grown on you since you first saw it. Color Out of Space? Yeah. Oh, dude. I love it. <laughs> awesome. I I bought it. Uh, I got the 4K Blu-ray sitting here. I My loved it My only so much. issue with it was some of the, the way the CGI comes across I didn't love. But, like, whatever. It's so cool and freaky. Right. I love it so much. And um, the special effects, I actually, they work for me. I don't know. Yeah, I did, I remember I'm not taking out. But the thing that was, like, the first hiccup I had to get over for it or sort of ease into was... Um, the the filmmakers his 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 like sensibility is so unique with just sort of like character building and dialogue it's mm. it's sort of this weird line of um of realistic yet movie e or like mm. classic mm-hmm. movie e in a way and i yeah, think a little that melodramatic that, almost yeah and i think that for people can be a little like they don't know yeah. how they're supposed to watch but like i just buy into the movie world straight up i really yeah. Now that I've seen it more than once, you know. I've been um, meaning to watch it again lately. Yeah. I've been kind of craving that. Yeah, it's, it's weirdness. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, and last point on all this I'll say is um there, you know, we we can look at also an example, Mouth of Madness is one that we mm-hmm. have covered on the show. It's just interesting to see with the endless and any other sort of new cosmic horror films or new or old, how they you know, there's certain tenets we think of, tenets, tenets <laughs> we think of with these films. And one of them that I like, or, and it's just interesting to see how they either adhere to them or, you know, do something else with them. Yep. So the biggest one for me that I'll pay attention to whether they're doing or not is whether they go 
a lot of like Lovecraft stories or in the mouth of madness where it is an escapable descent and there's no, you know, happy mm. ending really for the main character. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a return to normalcy in the outside looking in sense, but um, mm-hmm. it's all a descent into hell. And I, I really, I don't know that I prefer that route. I'm sure you could do it the other way too, but yeah. it's just kind of, I don't well, know. I mean, we made the point, and I think that it this is f- even more, you know, apropos to this conversation. Like, we talked about how The Lighthouse, um, and I would add Egger's other film, um, Witch. The those, those are also Lovecraftian styling stories. They really, really fit into that uh, – I guess style or that genre of horror and I personally feel that he, his execution of of that cuz he obviously it's a broad world uh or a broad type of thing to do lovecraftian things like right there's a big difference between mouth of madness and the lighthouse but there are commonalities and there are t- there are sort of thematic things that are common there are tonal things that are common there are visual things that can be common tentacles for example <laughs> um yeah and so it really is just i think those are there are a lot of examples of how different storytellers view the Lovecraftian stylings or of storytelling. And I think it's fascinating to see the spectrum that that now exists within that. Yeah. Um, but also I think it's cool that, that the the impact that Lovecraft had on modern horror storytelling. It's also super cool to see the decisions whether to set the modern day or not is a big mm-hmm. thing. Oh my god, Tim! I just can't get over how good the lighthouse is, and I hope any <laughs> listeners who, who like, I, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people they weren't totally on board or you know on a first viewing. I just hope something about it is maybe um, stuck with you, and maybe it'll grow on you. I think it's one of those. Me films personally, too. the larger you, anyone because oh, I love it. No, anyone who maybe you know wasn't as you know yeah. wooed on the first viewing. Yeah. Put the subtitles on. It'll help a ton. <laughs> it or really not. will because when I saw it the second time and actually had a little bit of like he- like leeway or not leeway, what am I trying to say? A little lead time because I knew essentially what was going on and I could really like listen and understand better the, the language. It was so much more enjoyable. Cool. So if, you, if, that was, if that's your hang up with that movie, just put the subtitles on. Great. Great, great, anyway. great. There yes, you go. We got what are we a, doing this week? <laughs> we got a whole movie to talk about here. From 1945. Oh, yeah. The Booty Snatcher. Tim. You added an extra O. It's The Body Snatcher. Oh. That's are you right. sure we watched the same thing? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, directed by, uh, yeah, I watched the one directed by Robert Wise, produced by Val Luton. Screenplay by Philip McDonald and Val Luton, based on The Body Snatcher from the 1884 short story by Robert Louis Stevenson. And some context for each of them. Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, may recognize his name from writing Treasure Island and Strange Mm. Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, Val Luton, the producer, 
also did, you know, one that we've covered on the show, Cat People. Yeah. But then also did, you know, the follow-up Curse of the Cat People. I watched a Ghost Ship was a fun old one. I walked with a zombie. Whole slew of kind of films of that that ilk. Foggy, foggy walks at night. It's great. And then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> directed by Robert Wise also. So after, you know, right before The Body Snatcher, he was coming off of doing that Cat People sequel, Curse of the Cat People. Went on to do The Day the Earth Stood Still, the 1963 Dude. The Haunting, West Side Story. Come on. <laughs> I believe co-director on West Side Story, um, Sound of Music. And Tim, even from uh, onto the uh, the Andromeda strain and the Star Trek, the motion picture, the first Star Trek movie. That's right. <laughs> I mean, this dude's no joke. Like, talk about a catalog. Jesus. Right. He was an editor on on uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah, he won the Academy like, that's Award for ridiculous. it. Ridiculous. <laughs> who was he? Robert Earl Wise. Yeah. Well, that's that's who he is. Crushing it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, those are credits for it. How about uh, we see what our trailer is for it? You ready for oh, it? Oh, yeah, let's do that. All right, here we go. 1945. Oh, and I should say, <laughs> starring, of course. Usually we don't say, but got to give them their doom. <laughs> yeah. From 1945. Starring Boris Karloff and featuring Bell Lugosi, the body snatcher. <laughs> work together. You mean we would sell the bodies to the doctors together? To dig them up? There'll be no digging. The kirkyards are too well guarded. We will, so to speak, burk them. Ray killed her. We can't be sure of that. I'm sure, and I mean to report it. It's like Burke and Hare all over again. That is Grave robbing is one thing, but this is murder. You ordered this subject, received it here, and paid for it. That makes you a party to murder. You must leave this house. I can't do that. You heard McFarlane. Save yourself, Master Fetters. Look at McFarlane. Gray, I must be rid of you. You've become a cancer, a malignant, evil cancer, rotting my mind. Never get rid of me, Tony. All right, the body snatcher. The booty snatcher. Oh, Tim. Oh, Tim. What a, what a film. Uh, how would you rate it per our rating system? Would you tell I'm yourself? I'll be honest with you. I would tell myself that I did not really like this movie. So would you tell yourself to avoid it, stream it, rent it, or buy it? Oh, man. I'm I'm so close to avoid it just for myself. I was really just – I just could not get into it. Um, I guess it, it it's not without merit. Like it's got some cool stuff in it, but just – I just was not feeling it. So I guess I'll give it a stream, but meh. <laughs> Yeah, I um it's kind of similar. I feel like it was more I realized with with these uh Boris Karloff Bell Lugosi films, I'm like it's unfair to always just be comparing them to the black cat for me. Sure. And I've <laughs> I've kind of heard overall you it's good to sort of temper your expectations with them. Oh yeah. But like I 
I don't know. I mean, the the highs were really high for me, but yes. I agree. Like, like overall, it was a little just kind of plotting or plot. There were only like four highs. Yeah, that's. I think that was my problem. Is like in between the highs, I was just like, uh, yeah, the the conce- or the idea of the, the, that initial conceit of body snatching and medical yeah. people getting caught up in that is great, but sort of the. There were there was lacking a thrust of a story for me, of yeah. like a sort of personal character story, and I don't know. Like I just by the end of it, I wanted to give it a stream it, but then it sat on me more. I almost wanted to give it a rent it just because it's something about when they're this old, you can't you know we get further from being able to recreate what they were. They become more mm. special. You do have you know I mean I mean Bell Lugosi, uh uh, you know, it's always said you want more from him, but Boris Karloff is, I think, so good in this. Um, yeah, he's great, but yeah, there's I don't know, there's so I'm, many things that hold me back from being like this movie, yay! Yeah, so I I could see myself telling her to rent it just for all that it does have to have seen it, but I feel like yeah, enjoyment wise, as far as this first viewing is more a stream it for me, but sounds like a bit more of a solid stream it than for you even though i can i also am with you on where it sounds like you were i I feel like i could take the four moments maybe five actually that i really like and it would be an amazing like 10 minute movie yeah and that's it i'd be like yeah i'm satisfied goodbye thing is though like they're even those sort of the individual just talking in a tavern scenes or in the <laughs> office scenes that Some are maybe that stuff's okay yeah i feel like any i don't know any of the stuff that is lesser feel like it's dragging a bit if you're actually able to tune into them mm-hmm. they're cool and i think just because of maybe expectations yeah. i wasn't able to as much as i'd want to on a first viewing so that's that's where i'm just kind of trying to be careful and coming down mm-hmm. on on whatever and, and giving it a little more a little more slack I certainly have, like, um, I've got thoughts as to what sort of forced me to feel so disconnected with it. And they're all kind of, uh, they're all storytelling problems. Same here, yeah. They're not really film problems. The, um, like, I just try to imagine, like, watching this with the the great remastered print in a big screen sure. and just being yeah man I'd rent this <laughs> mm, yeah that's interesting yeah the context matters I don't know I was very tired yesterday and just feeling like ugh yeah but that's why even though I could And then see I got it, a parking ticket this morning cuz I was so out of it last night I was like forgot to move my car well that's Come so- on so that's all why I don't know. Maybe a rent someday, or maybe it'll I'll regret it. But I'm a solid stream for now. Solid stream. Yeah, I'm a weak stream. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Like well, trickle. well, Tim. On to how about our summary? Uh, okay. You got a doctor. He's kind of a jerk. He's a little pompous. How about some names? Oh God. <laughs> Uh, McGillicuddy. What the hell is his name? <laughs> McFarlane. <laughs> McFarlane. Dr. Wolf, quote, Oh, yeah, Toddy. 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 
Yeah, so you got McFarlane. He's a pretty renowned doctor. That we're in Edinburgh. Um, in 1860, 70-something, something like that. Uh, it says right here, 1831. Oh, wow. Even older, great. Okay, so he's pretty well-to-do. He teaches medicine and uh, and also is a, a you know a practicing physician. He's got a student who he makes an assistant pretty quickly who's sort of our, I guess, our lead ingenuity guy. Is That's not the right word for it, but whatever. Um, what was his name? Fetis. Fetis. Fetis, I think is how they said it, right? Um, he's all right. He's a nice dude. And then um, and then you've got Gray, who is Karloff. Those are our main three people, really. Karloff, or Gray, is uh, a guy who knows McFarlane from his past, and we learn about that later. But he basically is the body snatcher. He's the guy who goes out, digs up graves, and provides McFarlane with corpses to practice medicine on. And that that's essentially what we've got going on. And then antics ensue because, you know, like Fetty's becomes an assistant and finds out that that's what Gray does and he has an ethical sort of dilemma about that, grave robbing and body snatching. And – um, he's motivated by a little girl who who is paralyzed. She's got a tumor, a spinal tumor, and um, she was in a he, carriage accident. Yeah, right. He really this is Fetty's. He really wants McFarland to operate on her, and McFarland's very like kind of wishy washy about it. He it was uh, Fetty's, not Fets. Oh, whatever. No, no. Know. I'm saying, sure. like, do you actually remember? I, I don't it, remember. Okay, <laughs> Fetty's. Fetty's. I feel like that's how they're saying it. Fed is, Anyway, um, Donald is his first name. If we yeah, want let's to call go him Don. Too. So Don, <laughs> he, uh, let's see, he really wants the the. He basically promises the mom of of the girl who's paralyzed that 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 he'll get McFarland to operate. Um, but McFarland is like, look, dude, I need more bodies, and like. You got to get on board, so we got to get Gray to get more bodies. Um, and Gray has very little scruples and has some strange power he holds over McFarland. We don't really know what that's all about, but we get some clues here and there. Mm-hmm. And Gray's he's he's a gnarly dude. Like he's what would you how would you kind of describe him? He's sort of like a street vagabondy type dude. He's a bit more austere than that would lead to suggest, though. Yeah, that's true. It's – he's not – well – He's kind of like a a a, a dark, foppish jerk, uh, very self-serving but very uh, confident in, in his dark ways. Yeah. Uh, he's also gr- – he's kind of grimy. Yeah, yeah. I mean he digs up graves for a living, so – He's got dirt under his nails, so to speak. Anyway, so yeah, he eventually actually starts killing people to provide bodies. Yada, yeah, then, yada, yada, that's yada. when we're and off then, to the races. And then who uh, is Bella Lugosi in this? He plays Joseph. So who he's is nobody. Joseph? <laughs> he's, he's like – the fact that they promote him as like a part of this movie is really, really not – I think I think it's 
it's inappropriate. Here's the thing, though. I they had their one moment with Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff when they're first I love together. That. That's when, a standout uh, they, scene. I was going to say when they walk by each other and don't even acknowledge each oh. other, <laughs> and I was worried that that was going to be it. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> that's that's what I thought. Like I'm like I don't put it past these people. It just was to, like, pretty close to just that. Yeah. So he he ended up doing more than I most could have feared. I'll put right. it that way. But he, no, no, Joseph is basically the assistant to McFarland. He's and, like the how he's like the uh, well, he's almost like an Igor-esque character. He's kind of the who assistant Bella Lugosi played. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he just does he 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 sort of sneaks around and and scares people accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Which I love. Great, great. All right. How about we move on to what worked then? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked for you? You know, honestly. The only thing that really, really, really worked for me is the ending. And I feel like, well, what I was going to sort of, my overall feeling is that like from a story point of view, if the movie was more of of the ending, like getting to the thrust of the ending. Find if that a way was to more, make the ending work, yeah. The, the movie, like, that filled out the movie in that realm of storytelling. Because the ending is essentially that McFarlane ultimately, it, what we learn is, is that what Gray has over McFarlane is that there was a, um, they went to court, how many, it was quite a while earlier, right? Like 30 years earlier or something. And... Essentially, Gray took the fall for McFarlane and a few other people too, right? It was a little convoluted. But essentially, Gray took the fall and didn't out McFarlane for crimes uh, previously. And so McFarlane owes him. And that's it, right? You could make a whole long movie about just that. And they – it kind of do, but we figure that out, and we and and McFarland ends up killing Gray, which is a good scene. I like that scene, the whole battle between the two of them, and then we get into kind of a little bit of a telltale heart vibe of McFarland obsessing over the fact that now he has to be the one to dig up people and the guilt of that, and he sees Gray's dead body in place of the body that they've dug up and he kind of loses his mind. And then there's a wonderful scene of, (laughs) of Gray in the, in the carriage, uh, flopping around as a dead body, as as a dead body, right. Flopping around and scaring McFarlane half to death and, and ultimately causing him to run the carriage off a cliff and, and die. 
that's the scene, Tim, when his corpse's arm was kind of flailing yeah. about. I just heard you like just laughing, and it just made I, me so happy. I was I was standing in front of the TV for One that of those entire scenes. scene. I was um, like, "Ooh, yeah, here something's going on. Great." So. I totally agree. The ending was like the best part of the movie, that whole sequence. But we, I got to set the stage a bit more. It was so, Gab, you, you, you know, it was so good about it. Sorry, I'm just so excited. Um, you left out. It's pouring rain. It's yeah. nighttime. We've, we've kind of had this sort of um, little bit of setup knowing that the girl was in a carriage accident. This is the idea. There's this threat of, you know, a carriage yeah, accident sort of in our yeah. background. But then it's like the classic Christmas Carol esque sort of uh, where where uh, McFarlane's hearing Boris Karloff Gray's voice in his head yeah. calling his name, calling his name, <laughs> like that. You know, he stops. He thinks, "Is that just you know?" Because what's his face with him as uh, uh, Fats is Don Donald is with him, right? You know, uh, not hearing what what he's what uh, McFarlane's hearing, Doctor Toddy as he hates being called. But that, I mean, yeah, there was something in that scene where it's like, yes, this is, this is great. This is classic. Even though the movie doesn't feel like it, it, it didn't necessarily feel like the ending to the movie that we had in some way. But at the same time, it was, it was so good. It was so good in itself. And the the crash was amazing. And then you have the kind of, like you said, tell telltale heart Poe Twilight Zone esque ending where you you know it's the the body of the actual corpse they dug up. But um, God, I mean, the actors committing that guy. I mean, I'll just say it now: the guy who played Doctor Wolf McFarlane, he was great. He is good. I, he seemed very familiar, but I don't know what I would have seen him in from that era. Henry Daniel, he's good. Great. He's he's really good at playing that. You he he's stiff upper lipping it kind of, but he's got a lot of sort of emotion and and just uh, things are are kind of percolating under the surface. He's covering his emotion, and like it finally spills out when he realizes or thinks that. His attempted surgery to to remove the tumor for the little girl and help her walk again, when he thinks that that has failed, he has this really great performance of like disbelief and then certitude that it wasn't his surgery that failed, that it's something about her. It's something else and he and he's like – he's sticking to that story even though underneath you can tell he's like – completely grieving the fact that he failed yeah and that's it's a, a compelling character flaw too that's just yeah he that he's perfect for this as far as concern more about his own abilities versus actually helping the girl at all <laughs> or, or right. even having basic bedside manner for the girl like <laughs> we see that disconnect yeah uh, absolutely so, Anything else on that last carriage scene? Because if not, I can just go sort of down the list of my other two favorite scenes. I think the only other thing to mention really is just how the real – to me, the the biggest successes of this entire movie are directorial. They are the the way that the 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 noir sort of lighting and and use of of light and dark 
are done in the most important scenes uh, is really, really striking and really, really well constructed. And clearly we're in the hands of a director and a cinematographer who know what they're doing. I mean, I'd argue even more throughout unless it's just sort of the well-lit office, you know? Yeah, I think that I, you know, it stands out in the more dramatic scenes. Like they they did more dramatic, you know, uh, composition and lighting in in the more dramatic scenes. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. And so like those really stand out throughout this movie. But in the carriage scene in particular, the way the sort of the lantern and the like, it's it's the light on Don Donald's face throughout that is really cool because he's kind of got, you know, they're being rained on. He's got his hat down. You can only see like this one sort of corner of his face for a lot of it. And it's just it's just cool. You can see the fog that the light's just getting captured in. It's yeah. thick. It's viscous. Yeah, yeah. They really doused him. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been an incredibly unpleasant scene to film. <laughs> it's wet. It's oh, my God, they're on. so wet. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that that to me is the, the thing that really I, I – just the composition. Like I finally felt like I was in a in a movie for real during that scene. Okay, I'm, I'm like wanting to. That's <laughs> I'm like there's there's a lot in there. I'm not. Uh, how do I, how do I uh, transition <laughs> that? Because yeah, I you kind of like got maybe ahead to what I wanted to say as far as just the an overall thing that I think was my very top best best thing was just simply the atmosphere and the sets. That's mm. like who Val Luton. I don't know. It's what he's known for in a way, yeah. and it's honestly what I came for. And uh, definitely there in that carriage scene. But now sort of jump back towards the first scene that I really perked up at, which was very cat people-esque, but it's when we get introduced to the beggar woman who's singing mm-hmm. her song in the alley in the middle of the night, who then is the imminent victim. It's a scene where she becomes the victim. And just that was this that stalking scene, the tension of the little stop and talk with her, mm-hmm. the cobblestone streets, all that. I'm like, this is great here's what i'm here for it's happening yeah. and again just i don't know, suspense combined with the atmosphere and sets and setting that was i think that may have been the first moment that i i really perked up and was like ooh, yeah this is that's really good stuff right there great <laughs> great on the same page there yeah and then so then i mean this, then yeah so i had that and then the ending on the carriage scene and then the third scene that was really a standout scene or sequence to me came in the middle with and maybe this was just like actual i was just so happy to get actually some kind of use or payoff of having bella and boris together yeah but it was their big scene where it was i mean it was so so good i mean it all culminates in this fight but how it starts with basically bella going there to um blackmail Bella goes, he's saying, I'm going to out you. You're killing people. You're stealing bodies. And Boris, sorry, it's just hard not to say their actual names. Uh, Gray, John Gray, Boris Karloff. It's, he's just so fiendish is another good word to describe his character <laughs> yeah, yeah. in this. How it, it was so much fun, how it kind of throws you off in a way where he keeps giving Bella Gosi more alcohol saying let's work together let's celebrate drink up and you see you see gray he doesn't even 
he doesn't even take a sip. Like when he holds up the glass, he doesn't even like actually take a drink from it. So I was sort of thinking like, okay, so is that his like standby poison whiskey or whatever? Like, you know, is that what the scene is? Uh, but no, that it wasn't that. And it was just sort of him forcing him to drink more was more just about him getting caught up in his own immediate, I'm about to kill this person ecstasy. Like mm, you can see mm-hmm. kind of imagine as his character, he kind of starts out more reserved and doing all nightly duty, you know, how he approaches killing the bodies. But this is sort of the one real example where sort of rather than hiding it off screen or just getting the moment where he kills him, we see his his like switching into serial killer mode in a way to poor Bella Lugosi. So, uh, yeah, just that, that was its kind of arc through it. And then just culminating in this gruesome choking basically, or like hand over mouth, you know, however, however he did it. Smashes him in the, in over the head and like lunges onto him and puts him on the ground and then sort of smothers him, I guess. Yeah. It's gruesome. And yeah. it had it's, that. It's pretty like I mean I remember going whoa we're the, that's where we're like I wasn't expecting that in this movie right like it really shocked me I mean because yeah it's setting it up like he's poisoning him and then it's also just kind of I know we've talked about this I don't know if it was in Cat People but some of the older movies we've mentioned how the fight scenes or in this case this murder scene there's an intensity to them in a way that a lot of sort of more typical modern Hollywood films don't have where it's sort of i don't know it's there's it's they're a bit more clumsy there's there's less punches thrown there i mean probably it's quite a lot more like what a real fight looks like exactly i mean i've bartended for many years and watched the the clumsy just uncoordinated scuffles that occur very rarely do you see punches thrown. There's a lot of grabbing people's shirts or like pushing faces or like, yeah. you know, it's just not elegant at all. I know we've touched on it before. I forget what movie, but anyway, exactly, 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 exactly. And that it's it's cool though. In that, I think we talked about we, it in the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, What's neat, though, you almost forget that those require the same choreography and rehearsal to pull off. And that's just part of more why, I don't know, why they they work in a fun way. You get, uh, there's there's a, oh, God, it's it's scary. It's gruesome. I I didn't want to put this in what worked, but it is sad. It works in itself as a scene, but just getting, it was sad seeing Bela Lugosi killed off like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know. I feel like, yeah, that is true. It felt really... Um, it was just sad. It know. just seemed like an underutilization of somebody who's got a, you know, much more to offer in, in any film that yeah, they're we'll, in. We'll get that into more in our next section. Cool. But yeah, those those three, the stalking scene, that, first, that scene, um, the Boris versus Bella, the ending on the carriage, those were my standout I, sequences. Yeah, I would add the um the 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 actual fight between McFarlane and Gray. That was my uh, honorable mention scene for sure. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, there's something there's something slightly different and and exciting to me about the way that scene was shot. Well, that was more 
it did push the more sort of action fight scene, but it, yeah. it worked for it because it was sort of our big carriage scene aside, our sort of our climax in a sense, our big, you know, lead into the climax. I don't I know, think, it worked as You know a, what I think? I, I think the reason it stands out more to me is because they they use um they use a really sort of now kind of I think it's considered a maybe classic or or maybe tr- almost a trope of that era um but it's 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 done in a really uh a, a compelling way so they've you know they have the fight the actiony sort of you know punch up and they're knocking each other around and that's all exciting and great. But as we get to the final moments of it, they do pan away and they're in front of the fire. They pan away to a wall and there's a cat on a little, what, like table or chest or something like that. And the wall above them, above the cat, uh, their shadows of the scuffle are cast. And you see one of the two shadows overtake the other one and finish him off. But you do not know who has won in that moment. And I think that that kind of, you know, suspense and, like, leaving that open for us to wonder for at least – I mean, you find out, like, moments later that it was McFarlane who won. But just getting that suspense of, oh, my God, when are we going to get the answer and not and not showing the death in the way that we were shown the death of, of uh, uh, Bella – Joseph, I think really it's sort of just an example of upping the ante, like knowing that you can't just do the scene, the same scene again, right? You, you, it's very similar in what's actually going on physically, right? It's just two dudes knocking each other around, which is essentially what we saw with Joseph and Gray earlier. So you gotta you gotta up the ante, like make this one count a little bit more that was more of a murder this is more of an actual fair fight tussle a culmination of two rivals right yeah and so it's just got more going on and and appropriately so you direct it with more going on right like add some more flair to the to the moment and some mystery and suspense and that so that for me that's basically it the the alleyway scene the first murder um is the first one. Boris and Bella's scene is the second one. This fight scene is the third. And the carriage is the fourth. I, I don't think I really have a fifth, even though I said I thought I might. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and said what I loved so much about that fight scene. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I started saying it's culmination, it's action-packed, yada, yada. But you, you alluded to it, the the device of cutting to the cat watching on. I just loved so, yeah. so much, of course, right here as my cat walks up to me. Um, but it's <laughs> it's uh, getting that reaction like from that cat, like when it first just sort of recoils and kind of screams at them for fighting, it makes it like you can't, like that's not a rehearsed thing. That's not a cat, right. you know, act. It just adds this whole- this, A character? yeah sure (laughs) um dogger anyway uh anyway yeah you you get what i'm saying with that and then it just and then just throughout keep continuing to cut to the cat i loved it so much simple very effective yeah 
Obviously, the people who made this movie were cat people more than dog people. Oh, God, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that for what did not work. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> uh, or, to, you know, hey, worked once before. <laughs> Let's keep it going. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, no, and something just about Boris with cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cats, a, a debilitating fear of cats. <laughs> He says oh, in the, the black cat. Yeah, I mean, other than those stand, the, you know, they're sort of the they're moments. Obviously, they're the exciting moments of the film. But like, it bums me out that that's the only thing we have our hat to hang or to hang our hat on. Uh, like, you want the other scenes to be equally compelling for other reasons, story reasons generally, or character reasons. And man, I just never felt it. Well, so, that's Tim sounds like you jumped the gun to our next section. Does I that did, mean you want to get <laughs> there? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, it's, it's, I feel bad, but I don't have anything else to say about it. Bell, uh, Boris is amazing. Like we already said that, like his acting is so good. I mean, the doctor's Bella, acting is so good. Bella, Bella doing, or yeah, Bella doing <laughs> his weird little Igory thing is great. I mean, just him being him. He's just great. Yeah. Put him in doing whatever. I'll like it as much as we do get. You know, outside of that, <sighs> is there anything else? I don't even want to reach for something that's not there, but they're just, yeah. I just felt the rest of it was meh. But you agree, atmosphere, set, setting, all that too? Everything, you know, I'm, yeah, almost everything. All right. Yes, that some of the sets. No, I can I can <laughs> expand on that. Cool. And when you mentioned the kind of effective shadow work and lighting and all that, I'll say that was really effective, especially for me in the second half. Once yep. we get to those two, the murder scene and the fight scene. Once they're in that tavern, a lot. The tavern, the- yeah. The way the tavern is lit, just the the dampness of that. I obviously always love some dampness. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um i i do i will say the the way that joe uh sorry the way that gray uh does that thing of hanging things and taunting mcfarlane like hanging the the past over his head the the performance of that and the way that that's it's very um it's really well plotted out sort of in camera. You know, you, you, the, the, they sit on it. They, they don't rush through it or try to do anything. They just let the camera sit on Gray's face and let that whole thing sink in. And you get to the reverses of McFarlane, just you can see it eating away at him. And so to me, that's probably the, the the fifth thing that stands out is just that the interactions between the two of them, especially as we move further along in the story, when you really start to realize that there's there's more going on, the backstory stuff starts to come out. The tension that the two of them have is quite good. And it's shot really well. Like that tavern stuff is great. Absolutely. So, and the to way me that yeah 
the way that Gray messes with him, I kind of yeah. think you've already mentioned it, where he calls him Toddy. And then, you know, as McFarlane's nickname, and then McFarlane goes, don't call me that or I hate that nickname. So then in the next sentence, he just immediately calls him Toddy again. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. ruthless. <laughs> Says it all right there. Great. All right. That's all I have too. Agreed. Cool. Agreed across the board. And here we go. Next section. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> yeah, I'll get out of the way. I'm over just killing animals in movies. It's as uh it's as I I know this is an old movie or whatever, but it's as tropey as saving a cat in a movie, you know, as as <laughs> Isn't that it? trope. Yeah, we uh, need to stop. It's just it's what isn't there a term? There's a term for the way that women are depicted. It's it's like refrigerating. It's like something to do with a refrigerator. Do you know what I'm talking about? The way that no. women are, are often depicted. Man, I'll have to find it and look it up or whatever. But <laughs> it feels yeah, yeah, I don't remember why that that is what is coming to mind, but I'll figure it out some other time. So um using that using the death of a of an animal as a as a device to motivate your protagonists i just find it to be so what what are we talking we hope you watched it with us but yeah um our body snatcher boris karloff gray uh he kills a dog at the beginning yeah like with a really go anywhere yeah just because it's just to show that he's an asshole it's, yeah, and to show he's uh, oh yeah, he says later the, the dog was alerting his presence at the graveyards. I just I don't know. I just wanted to get it out of the way, and again, it was 1945. I don't. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> not into it. I'm not into it either. Very subjective. Great. Okay, so um, a big part for me, just. Th- I I can kind of see why you know why it works but for me the the way the the way that the sets for the vast majority of the movie they're just really boring to me. I don't know what it is exactly. It may just be a product of the the era and the and the way things are shot but that ornate sort of austere living room where they have a lot of conversations. I'm just like, if you're going to do a scene in that room, do something more with it. Do something more interesting. I mean, cat people does a lot with just an apartment, like just an apartment, a lot. And everything in that movie is the same era. It's is pointing to the themes of the story. There is none of that in those scenes. And I think that's largely what just I was sort of like, I'm bored. I don't care. I'm not really compelled to pay attention to this, this uh, conversation or whatever's going on. And when you couple that with this sort of B story of the little girl, I, I don't care. Like I don't care about Donald. I don't care about the little girl. I don't care about her mom. Like all of that stuff seems frivolously unimportant to me. And they those scenes – go on and on 
so you just you just bridged two things. You mentioned the office things I shot, and then the girls' story. So because most of me, those conversations happen in those rooms, that I think that having both of them happening <laughs> at the same time, I was like, Ugh, I think you're doubling uh, down on what I don't like. On your first point, um, yeah, I agree, and I think showing what cat people did do in the sort of similar office living room scenes. Uh, yeah, it's exactly it. For me, it's less in, like, it's fine if it is kind of a well-lit, almost, you know, outward appearance safe space. That's but then fine. it's, so so it comes down to camera angles for me. Yeah. And sort of telling the story yeah. with camera angles, which we now have seen enough of these old movies were so impressed with their camera angles that they do that it's not really an excuse for me that it is an old movie anymore. Right. I you mean, know? Remember, remember also in The Black Cat, not cat people, but in The Black Cat, you've got that big, expansive, open, you know, main room that a lot of the scenes take place in. But like, because there's the stairway and the balcony and like the weird design of that house and the different shadow stuff that's going on that they very purposefully put in there to make it have this odd almost – it's not futuristic but it's mo- oddly modern look to it on top of the ancient dungeons or the castle that was below. Like doing something with the sets to speak to the story matters I think and – Maybe they were just sort of handcuffed, handcuffing themselves by by saying, well, this is realism. It takes place in a real place in a real time, and we want to stick to that. I, I guess that's fine. But even then, you can still do things with it, right? Like Citizen Kane does a lot, and there's nothing fantastical about that, right? So the, it you can do it. And they just kind of – I think they just kind of – we're like, okay, it's a dialogue scene. It's this. Let's just get through it. Is is sort of how it felt to me, or maybe that's how I just. I mean, look took at it. any of the older ones we watched, uh, Vampire, The Innocents. Like, oh, that's how they're all shot. I mean, the Black Cat you already mentioned, um, right? The, but the, all, or, yeah, uh, all you, those, uh, Sorry, no, no, uh, Cat People. <laughs> yeah, Cat People. Like they all have the they they all do a really good job of making the mundane room feel like something more is going on. Yeah. Even just from a visual standpoint, just, just cam, like you said, the angle, whatever, but man, these are boring. Right. Agreed. I, I, I would love to see it again, like a bigger screen, better print, better quality, all that. Sometimes picking up on the details in the room is enough in itself. Um, and then also maybe like, just because, on that first watch, I was just like, where's Bella? I'm now, now maybe <laughs> watching it. I'd be more, um, just already in with the McFarlane character and yeah. sort of enjoying his scenes more. Uh, so now, yeah. Then you went on to mention, uh, as you put it, the B story of the little girl. So a couple things on that, a couple things that that makes me think of. This is really interesting how you put it as the B story because it both is, and it isn't. Yeah. And I think what how it how it isn't it is how it feels like it's kind of our our uh not fully executed, not appropriate A story in a way, where it's really our only <laughs> yes. thrust yes. for them for you know our our young uh positive uh upstanding citizen doctor with Donald. <laughs> uh it's you know it's his sort of moral thrust for actually getting getting in there um and and go, going along with this 
But at a certain point, I think what it should have done is change the situation so it is more personal for them. So it's completely disassociated from saving this little girl as being the main you know, it's it's it wasn't enough for me as an audience member to uh, to latch on to as a thrust. Yeah. It needed to be like where something make make it work so they have to keep killing people, otherwise they're going to get caught in some way, or you know, sure. some some way to make it personal like that. Well, I, I think that one option you have is you have a movie about essentially a serial killer and the enabler of that serial killer. And then you have these this other story going on. Those two things, they need to intersect more, I think, for it to work. And uh, your serial killer straight up kills a woman on the street. Why not make the threat of him going after the mother mm. the peril that we care about? Like as if she has the – she it has to have more uh, immediate genes or whatever that the bo- or blood that the body sure. won't reject. A- anything. <laughs> she's just out of convenience. She's there. She's the one who's around. Like, why wouldn't Gray be like? I mean, I get there's reasons why you wouldn't just no, practical because she's reasons, the mother. Like, it'd have to be a specific reason why it'd have to be her because I don't even think they'd stoop to. Oh, we're gonna kill the little girl's mother. But anyway, you could do it. I'm sure lots of ways. But as yeah, far the, as- you could even just give. Donald, the idea that she's now in peril, that the mother is now in peril because of the circumstances of what's going on. He's like, well, you know, if the lady on the street isn't safe and this guy's starting to kill people for the sake of, you know, his own enjoyment at this point, it's it's sort of graduated from just a job. He's doing it because he likes sticking it to McFarlane. Who's next? You know, like, and then you can actually play that out. You can put her in seeming peril and have that be a misdirect so that, 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 like, you could weave it so that Donald gets this idea that, oh my God, something Gray said suggests that maybe he's going to go after this woman that I now care about. And that is the impetus for Donald to not be around at a certain point that then pushes the story forward to allow McFarlane and Gray to have their confrontation, right? Like these little things of like who's in danger, who who's where to prevent or to allow that danger to follow through and then turning that on its head so that we, we the audience go, oh shit, he shouldn't have left. He should have stayed. And then this other thing that's more tragic wouldn't have happened or whatever. Like, that to me is the, the – it's kind of the storytelling thing that I mentioned that I feel like is just not there. It's like this, the twists and turns and the the sort of – the intrigue of what's going to happen never really feels like it, it ra- rises to the level of compelling that I want in this type of movie. At a certain point, it's kind of like, oh, they just keep – killing people and taking bodies and you right. just kind of okay that's that, i guess that's that what they're doing at this point yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know if i'm necessarily sold on specifically having to tie in the mother but i think just as an example of something to sort of sure provide more motivation or uh well, and tie well, the stories together or mcfarland's wife right like she's around she's at risk His like secret wife yeah <laughs> put people at put people in peril and not to say that it's just women that need to be in peril that's yeah, not what yeah, i'm yeah, getting yeah. at 
Like, don't <laughs> let's not go down that road. Like, That's what I'm saying. I, There's something else more personal. Just I, I thought like just them getting caught. That could be enough, you know, them getting exposed somehow. Have Donald be the one who's, you know, he goes out with Gray to dig up a body at one point. Like, why did we never feel like maybe Gray's going to just turn on him? Right. And, and I mean, that's another way of putting, give him more compelling reasons to keep going along in a way and have it, you know, become more, even if it is just the little girl that he cares about. I wasn't even feeling that was his reason at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess more too on, you know, calling it the B story. It's interesting. Just more just, maybe this is a more thing of note or I guess a way to say, I don't know. We'll see where we end up. But uh, comparing it to other films that, you know, we sort of associate with as the time, same actors, like let's take The Black Cat, but you know, you think Frankenstein, Dracula too. There, there really is no B story a lot of the times. They have this sort of pointed 70-minute runtime to them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's cool. It's fun. It's something we don't have nowadays that, uh, or, you know, you, you don't see as much. That just, that works. And like, let's say the black cat, like you could almost start to argue that the, the couple is, you know, mm-hmm. that, that get, gets, get them um, taken along. Uh, they're, they're not a B story. They're a MacGuffin really. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> they're Yeah. And so, so that's sort of where, I don't know, that, that's, that's how the little girls sort of been, you, you could say it was, it was that more so, but no, at the same, it feel, felt this sort of like a failed integration of different story points in in the body snatcher more so yeah i mean there's that whole thing of like oh look she because she heard the the hooves of the the horse the white horse she's compelled to actually like overcome her her resistance to to standing up and she does it because she's not really thinking about like that's a you know, it's kind of an, a cliche. Like we've seen that thing. Maybe at the time it wasn't. Um, maybe this was the first time that cliche was used. Um, but having that somehow be the impetus for Donald to run home and tell the doctor, but then the doctor's like, "I, it doesn't matter. I've got." other business to attend it it just doesn't feel like it it it's not woven in to mean anything like it's just sort of like a thing that happens and then they move on to the next thing right and again i I think that's my problem with all of that (laughs) and uh, you know a lot of this as it always is is wanting a movie that just wasn't there and it is interesting to sort of frame this all again as the thought experiment of we loved that ending how would you get there right but right. anyways um well it makes me wonder my, too like what the what the original story has in it yeah well uh just my other main thing and this definitely falls into you know our expectations of kind of what we wanted it to be but poor bella lugosi just getting relegated <laughs> yeah, to this this part like as much as i love the doctor at the same time i'm like well you have yeah, maybe Bella could have played the doctor. I don't know. Oh, or, he definitely could have. Yeah. He I, definitely could have. And then just seeing him again get killed like that, there was this weird kind of like Boris had the upper hand in the end of their of their, you know, call it a rivalry. I don't I don't really think mm-hmm. it's that. But um yeah, Bella seems to sort of get the short end of the stick. And maybe this is to me coming off of 
uh, rewatching Ed Wood pretty recently hmm. where we yeah. sort of get his tragic life story. Um, and not to, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess by the end, as far as how Ed Wood portrays it. Um, anyway, just seeing poor Bella, just wanting him to, to make, to, to get more out of the two of them when they were alive, put them together in more fun ways. Again, I'm so grateful we did get that one key scene with them was so good. But even yeah. then I was just, I was a sad seeing him get literally less like choked and smothered <laughs> by right. uh, Boris Karloff getting the juicier role. Yeah. Yeah. It is a bummer, but well, yeah, their scene is, is worth watching for sure. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you good for our next section or any other? Yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> Great. All right. Next last section for the body snatcher things of note. This should be interesting. So actually, I did have another thing in what worked for me that I I failed to mention, but I think it very much can also fall under things of note. And that is, Tim, the, the fun of the moral question at play that is ah, something yes. that we... I, I'm, I, I had it written down right here in my notes. For just totally forgot to mention it, and it absolutely yep. did work. But it's <laughs> it's there straight up, and it is kind of what you're hanging your your hat on, you know, theme wise, story wise, throughout. Whether it was how well it was integrated or not, aside the point. But but they do bring up the idea of when someone's dead, why why can't we just use their body for you know helping someone else? Right, and I think that's like so many divisive things in our world, it's sort of, and here's just my take on it, I guess I'm jumping into, if it is a question, like I think there's definitely truth to a person should have their right and say as far as, you know, what's done with their body afterwards. Sure. Uh, But then you get the other side of the argument, well, what about just when bodies aren't available and you could save this little girl? What do you do? So I think like, yeah, so many things, the question or the, you know, the solution, it's not one of those two extremes, but it's how do we create and nurture a world where people would be more willing just to check the donor box, let's say in this case, um, mm. cause it's, it's something you can't, you know, you it's complicated. Yeah, you can't <laughs> like like so many things. You can't shame someone if they don't want that with their body into then right. <laughs> then deciding to to donate their body. Let's say, um, but yeah, no, that was cool. That that was front and center in a lot of the scenes, and um, yeah, and that's you could say what it was about in a sense, and that did work for me. But and obviously, the moral question it brings up is also something interesting. Yeah, I, I I agree. I yeah, I think yeah, I would have I, I intended to mention this in things that worked or what worked. Um the the depiction of of a doctor having the certitude of that thing and then having the Hippocratic oath be the last thing that they put up on the screen, I think is a really like that's the underlying story and i think that 
it's there. It's in the movie for sure. Um, and I think it's what makes McFarlane an interesting character. Um, it, it it is. I, yeah, I agree. It's an interesting thing to kind of watch a character contemplate, or at least have Donald force him to contemplate by being this other sort of having having another point of view on it. That's pretty. Um, well, I mean, what, Gray is. He's just the walking embodiment of whatever, you know, it's <laughs> that's right. He he's he's strong on the on the one side of the argument. You know, he's he's all about yeah. it. Yeah, I, I like I like the moral question that it brings up. So yeah, I agree. It is interesting. It's a cool theme. Yeah. Or question or whatever. Uh you got anything else interesting? Things of note? Worthy. Oh, well, we mentioned a bunch of the things I was going to talk about in terms of who all made this movie. So that we got that out of the way. Um, no, I don't no, I don't really have anything else. Um, one thing I was curious about, see, where was it filmed? I guess it doesn't say here. Huh? I thought it. Like, do you think they filmed any of that in, on location? It doesn't look like it. Huh. I don't know. You wonder for, I mean, for those streets, it always feels like they're real like, streets. Yeah, like where, where was that? It looked awesome. I mean, maybe it could have been a backlot type thing. Yeah. I guess. Um, damn, I thought it would be right here and it's not. Oh, well. Um, but other than that, no. No, nothing nothing else stands out to me. Very last short tidbit, important to note. This is apparently the last film Lugosi and Karloff made together. Oh, okay. So I'm sure that's a big part too. And no, no, I mean that combined with the filmmakers is I'm sure why I added it to our list. Just to dismember. Yeah. Great. Cool. Great. Well, if that's it for the body snatcher not the booty snatcher from mm. 1945 <laughs> tib uh you got a recommendation for us you want me to go i do want you to go great well it's not often that i finish a book <laughs> based on oh. the, the expedi- expediency <laughs> at which i read but uh kind of you know when you know talking to you about you like that you must remember this podcast i was really feeling yeah. like i wanted to dive into some old hollywood lore and and atmosphere actually is a good way to put it and i uh discovered a new book called the castle on sunset life death love art and scandal at hollywood's chateau marmont Ooh, you know all fun. about the chateau marmont tim it's, i've been uh, there i mean well i've been in the lobby the main ornate room i mean i'm jealous very now cool. Uh, I want to. I go was very that. lucky, you know. This is one of those sort of things that happens when you live in LA. At times, I worked with a guy who was dating a woman who he's now married to, whose best friend was the chef at Chateau Marmont. Cool. And because of that long, <laughs> weird connection. One time they uh we were working together and the women called and said, Hey, 
you guys should come hang out. We're hanging out at at the chateau, and and I'll make you. You know, the the chef was like, I'll make you some. We had these little um, what are they called? They're little like fruit tart. Uh, okay, thing. it was well, very very over the top, in my opinion. I was like, I don't belong here. <laughs> so, I mean, do, are you aware of the kind of history, or and how did the atmosphere there make you feel? Like that's kind of what it's. Yeah, I mean, it has. Yeah, it's it's cool i mean it feels like a time capsule i it is it is that so i mean it's got a fascinating fascinating history about you know the change of ownership along the way the stars who made it home along the Mm. way so it gets into all that i think you would really enjoy it tim and uh, i even watched then the sophia coppola movie somewhere that is kind of about it and takes place there oh cool um that was really good uh, very Sophia Copley. Uh, I, I liked it. Um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, no, I'm specifically recommending the book by Sean Levy, the castle on sunset. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, I guess I just wanted to put some, how to put it very like accepting of eccentric outsiders, bohemian vibe throughout its history. It attracts, attracts those types of people. It's like their whole thing is yes. Respect the privacy, <laughs> you know, mm. like first and foremost. Um, so it kind of, you know, as anything we have, you know, toes that line of anything goes or, but, but, you know, more fall on the, the good of that as far as wanting to be very accepting of anyone. So ahead of their time in that regard, but also can be pushed um, to a fault, someone argue, but that ethos of pure acceptance is something I'm always drawn to and interested by. So as far as, and just that combined with its um, connection to old Hollywood and it's still existing a monument in that sense. uh, Yeah. uh, Well, I want to stay there, but until then I really enjoyed the book. Yeah. That's castle on sunset, man. What should I recommend dead? I feel like I've been, I was on the road for, God, I don't know, 10 or 11 days. So I feel like I haven't You watched my copy of Parasite yet? You know, honestly, last night I almost did, but I got too tired. Okay. (laughs) I was like, today's the day. And then I was like, oh, shit, I have to watch the booty snatcher first. And then I watched that and I was like, now I'm very tired. (laughs) I went to bed. Um, God, what have, what have I been doing? What is my life lately? I don't well, know. Anything from your trip? Um, God, what do we do? We, I mean, I can tell you what I would not recommend dead, which is driving from Milwaukee to LA in two days. Don't do that. Okay. It's two 16 hour days sure. by myself. We'll take oh. it. A reverse hey, you know recommendation. What we did do? Which was very cool. I mean, this is so random and and probably going to be difficult for anybody to really do unless you happen to be in Amarillo. <laughs> uh, I, and I, I'll put a picture of this on our Instagram. There's this super random thing on like basically on Highway 40 in Texas as you go through Amarillo and just sort of on the side of the road in a random <laughs> field are like – seven or eight Cadillacs that have been they're half in the ground and they're in a row so the front end has been buried of each of the Cadillacs and they're like kind of the back end is sticking out of the ground at an angle and they're all in a row 
And I think it's called like the Cadillac Graveyard or something like that. Um, I'll link it in our Instagram. It's super odd. And so it just is there and people pull off the highway and bring spray paint and just spray paint them. And so there's years and years and years of spray paint buildup on these things. So it sort of has become, and maybe this was the intention, it's just this weird art installation that's been there for quite a while. I I don't actually, I didn't look up how long it's been there, but uh, it's weird and wild. And I took some very cool pictures at like just after the sun had gone down when we were out there. And yeah, it's an odd place, but but super cool. So go there if you're in Amarillo (laughs) or driving through. I love that's it. That's mine. The great recommendation. I think it would be cool. Imagine, I mean, you say if the tradition is spray painting it, but imagine refurbishing them from the like where you can see them up and just oh giving God. them a stellar paint job. It'd be so neat. It's it is it is very bizarre. The amount of paint buildup that is on them, like the the wheel, uh the wheels, they don't have tires on them. Um look like balls because of how much paint has been sprayed onto them. So would that be against the point what I suggested or would that be cool, you think? I think it I think it'd be impossible. <laughs> it would be super cool. But like how would you get all of those years of paint off of the off of the metal? I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. paint cars. It'd be, it'd be cool. Um yeah, it's a it's a very strange thing, but it's there. There's lots of stuff across the the US that like, like that that you sort of randomly discover on these road trips. Um, but that one's cool. Great, great. So, Tim, I believe uh, it's your turn to pull from the hat. It sure is. I'm going to pull. I'm going to shake it up a little bit here. Oh, one fell out. Hang on, hang on. Put that one right back in. I didn't see what it was. All right, here we go. And I'm stopping with this one. Oh, it is... How apropos, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. Cool. And we have both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's in there. So So this one is the earlier one, Yep, I presume? I believe it's 31 and 41. Cool. (laughs) Great. I'm glad we're going in order with them. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, until then... Until the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You can find us wherever you found us. We got an Instagram. We got a Twitter. Our big ask is that you tell a friend if you enjoyed being here with us because we'd love to have them too should they be in need of some horror fiends, some horror buds to we journey. Know, we know they are. We know yeah. they're in need. Yeah, to join us on this uh, on this journey of dismemberment and delving, as I've said. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, uh, let's end on then. You mentioned the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, yeah, I don't know who this guy was, but uh, Hippocrates. That's uh, they, they end the film, The Body Snatcher, with a quote from them. And it is this. These are his words. It is through air that man rises. It is through tragedy that he learns. All roads to learning begin in darkness and go out into the light. So with that, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>